So as promised, we're off to Thessalonica. And we're going to read from um, Acts chapter 17, from verse 1 to 9. So I'll give you a second to find that. I think I've got 1113 as the page. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1 to 9, then we'll invite Nick up to bring the word of the Lord to us. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for its truthfulness and its fullness, Lord. Thank you that we can rely on it. And we pray for Nick as he comes to explain this to us, Lord, to bring your word to us and open it up before us. So we pray, Lord, that you fill him with your spirit as he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. And, and Google Thessalonica. Um, and something like this will come up if we have the next slide. Okay? You, um, and it's, that's really intriguing. And I think one of the reasons um, I want to just spend a little bit of time in Acts and show you a couple of things is just to remember that this is real history. Um, this is stuff that really happened. Um, and so the first thing you will get on top of the list is Thessaloniki holidays. Um, it's still there. It's still um, Greece's second city. On the next slide, um, if you go to Wikipedia, um, you get a few little pictures there. But really interesting, the kind of parallels between um, old Thessalonica and new Thessalonica. It's still in the same place. Um, it's still alive and kicking. And so it's still a transportation hub. Um, it's still Greece's um, second city. Um, so a lot of the things that, that Paul encountered, um, you know, would be similar to you if you take your Thessaloniki holiday. Um, if you have the next slide, now this is going to be difficult for you to get, to get a real picture of. Um, over here is Antioch. And Paul went to Thessalonica in his second missionary journey. It's actually the, the purple one um, at the top. So the yellow one is he'd been out on this journey before into these cities in the, in the middle, which you probably can't read, um, Iconian, Lystra, and Derby. And this time round, he heads out um, from Antioch. Um, he goes back to those churches, Derby, Lystra, 
Iconium, he picks up Timothy um, in, in Lystra. Paul and Silas are heading out together. They're a team. Uh, they're a kind of missionary partnership. They pick up uh, Timothy in Lystra. If you read in Acts, they head this way. They want to go in Asia, but, um, but the Lord stopped them. We don't know how. They just felt maybe um, that the Spirit was saying to them, don't go there. So they carried on round skirting Asia. Um, and then they thought, well, we'll go into Bithynia, uh, the place in the top. Again, they were stopped. Um, and that night, Paul had a dream um, that there was a man of Macedonia. Um, I don't know how he knew he was a man of Macedonia, but they did wear big felt hats. Um, so maybe he had a dream of the man in the big felt hat um, when they were near Troas. And so he, he, he took them out. The Lord was calling them um, to go into Macedonia. Now, I've sort of cut Macedonia off the map, but it's that yellow bit in the top left-hand corner. <coughs> in Troas, they pick up Luke. Um, and we discover that because Luke writes Acts. And once we get to Acts 17, for a start, he's talk, talking about we instead of they. So we don't know why Luke was in, in Troas, but they pick up Luke in Troas. They head across. As you can see, they go to Philippi, um, the, the Philippian church. Um, obviously, doesn't exist before they get there. Um, they're put in jail. Remember the Philippian jailer? Uh, they're put in jail in Philippi. They come down through um, Amphipolis, as we read, in Apollonia. Um, we assume they didn't stop there because there wasn't a Jewish synagogue. And Paul at that moment is starting his, his mission in all these different places in Jewish synagogues. Um, they come down to uh, Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, they, they were definitely there for three Sabbath days. They were probably there for a little bit longer than that. Um, but, but the Jews uh, are upset. They're worried that um, people are being drawn away um, from their uh, synagogue membership. And they get a mob together. Um, they try to find Paul. It's interesting. Um, they try to find uh, Paul, but they can't. Paul and Silas, maybe they've, they've very sensibly uh, hidden themselves. What they do is find poor old Jason. He's the guy who's probably been putting them up um, and letting them use his house for their meetings. And the poor old Jason gets um, dragged before um, the city officials. Um, so uh, Paul moves on, on to Berea, around the corner. He's at the top left corner. But they're still after him. The Jews are still after him. So he heads off to sea um, and heads down to Athens. And Paul and Silas and Timothy catch up with him sometime later. We're not quite sure when. But at some point, Paul sends Timothy back from Athens, back up to Thessalonica, to see what's happening. Paul has kind of set up this church. It's maybe three weeks or three months old. And then he's had to leave. Because of, because of pressure and persecution. And he knows that they're, still, that they're still there. How are they getting on with this pressure and persecution? And Timothy finally comes back. And by the time he comes back, Paul is in Corinth. Um, and Paul writes this letter, um, 1 Thessalonians, from Corinth. It's one of the very earliest parts of the New Testament. Um, even actually written probably before the Gospels. The only letter potentially before it is, is the book of Galatians. So here we have one of the earliest books, one of the earliest letters um, of, of the Bible written in the midst of this real-life situation to a city which is not that different to what it is today. So let's dig in and take a look. We'll read, if we can, 1 Thessalonians. Once I get the right page. Chapter 1. It's on page 1186. 
And I'm going to read to you chapter 1. It goes like this. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. This is like the greeting. The greeting came first. We put our names at the end. In a Greek letter, you put it at the front. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Standard so far Greek letter. Say who you are. Say who it's addressed to you. Little greeting. Um, and then a thanksgiving. Usually it would be a thanksgiving to a, a, a deity. Uh, and Paul puts his own spin on all these things. We always thank God for all of you. And continually remember you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love. And your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he rescued from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Come September, we like to go back to basics. I guess we ought to call this kind of back to basics, but better. That's what our aim would be in the Christian life. We come back to the gospel, we come back to the central truths, um, but we understand them better because we've changed. Haven't you changed in the last year? So it comes to you fresh, it comes to you slightly differently. We come back to the basics, have my slides, Matt, Max. Um, what is Christianity? What is Christianity all about? And we know that all of the Bible is about Christianity, but where do I start? If I want the basics, well, if you want to find out about Jesus, look to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that's a good place to start. Read one of the Gospels. Where would you want to go, though, if you want the theology, if you want the logical, theoretical understanding? You might go to a book like Romans uh, that Paul later wrote to the church in Rome. It's a, it's a good um, uh, understanding of the central doctrines of the Christian faith. But what does it look like on the ground, in person? What does it look like to become a Christian? What does the real Christian look like? And of course, Christianity, is, as we've already alluded to, isn't it? It's more than, more than each person's individual relationship with the Creator. It brings people into a whole set of, of community relationships in this thing that we call church. Well, what is a church and what does a real church look like? And for that, there's a good argument for turning to 1 Thessalonians. The first, the one means this is the first letter Paul wrote to them. Because they're a new church. They've just been planted. And by God's grace, they've made a really good start. And just in the opening of Paul's letters, and today we're just looking at the first three verses. That's the address, the greeting, and the beginning of the thanksgiving. We'll start to get um, an answer for some of our questions. So what's in an address? 
Have you ever noticed that how your name and address is written on an envelope tells you a lot about what's coming inside? I would suggest, even before you've opened it, I would suggest that you go and try this. Okay, but I think, actually, you're probably doing it automatically already. Pick the envelope up, and, and you know or you guess from the outside um, what's on the inside. Is it addressed at all? If it's not addressed at all, then it's kind of junk mail. Unless it's a voucher for some restaurant you really like, then it just goes straight into recycling. Is it typed or handwritten? Handwritten... Perhaps the more interesting ones, because it holds out, uh, holds out the hope this is something personal. If it's typed, it's not going to be personal. Uh, is it that funny kind of type that looks like it's sort of been machine printed and is therefore a kind of circular, a group mailing? You learn to kind of tell the nuances, don't you? Is it just me? Surely not. Does it say Nicholas G. Gray? If it is, it's not from a friend or not somebody who, who knows me very well. Friends call me Nick. Does it address me as Rev? Um, in which case, it's something to do with church. One company, um, can't remember who it was, clearly didn't have Rev as one of their options um, for their titles. So my first name, according to them, was Therev, T-H-E-R-E-V, um, which somebody had typed in The Rev. Um, so I was... <laughs> So according to them, I was Therev Nicholas George Gray. <laughs> so so we, we learn quite a lot from Paul's greeting. Paul opens with this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It's personal. It's a personal letter. It, it comes from the three men who started the church. It comes with love and affection. It, it, comes with a, it comes from a known relationship. So they're going to read it with, with hope. That's, it comes from them, and it's addressed to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by church? It's good to ask these basic questions now and again. What is this church thing he talks about? There's been no time for a building. The Greek word Paul uses is ecclesia, and it simply means an assembly, a gathering, uh, a meeting of people. And it's a Greek word that's been around for hundreds of years. And it's been used in the past for a Jewish meeting, the meeting of God's people. It's been used in a Greek context for maybe a political meeting of some sort, an assembly. And so there's a good question there. What makes an assembly a church? And the very simple answer, they are the people who are in God and in Jesus Christ. In Thessalonica. So like branches on a vine, to use the picture that, that Jesus gave us. These are people who are, have a spiritual connection with God, like branches on a vine. They have a, a union, a, a very real union, through which a, a branch draws sap from the vine, and we, we draw spiritual life and that real connection and, and fellowship with God through that connection of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, branches, once they're connected into a vine, they're no longer single branches. They're part of something bigger. So, so a church is, is those people who are in Christ because they've trusted Christ, assembling and gathering um, in a locality. And most of the time, that's what 
Paul means by that, that word, the church. is the, the assembly of people who trust Christ in a location. Occasionally, he uses it for churches across the city. And just once or twice, he uses it for the church across the world. But there's a little hint already that this assembly of people is, is the more important one and it supersedes their old loyalties. So the assembly would have been the, the word used for the political institutions. So it's a bit like Paul had called us the council in Stainash Crescent. It's just that little hint that actually, yeah, we know there's a council. Um, they have their offices just over the road in Noel Green. But if Paul had called us the council in Stainash, it was just that little hint that actually you have a new loyalty, you're part of a new kingdom, you're part of a new people, which is greater and more important. Um, than the borough council. So that's what's in the address. What's in the greeting? Well, the greeting's very straightforward, doesn't it? Grace and peace to you seems very straightforward. <coughs> but in Greek letters, you would say greetings, or well, you would say karain, or karain, which meant rejoice or hail. Uh, and Paul has changed it to charis. It's, part, it's the same word, slightly, uh, same root, slightly changed, which is to you, grace. Grace. Grace is good things from God that you don't deserve. <laughs> Grace is God's favour on you. Grace is when God makes things that could go wrong go right. Paul prays for the grace. And, and peace is, harks back to the old Jewish um, greeting. If the, if the Greeks said hail, um, the Jews said shalom. They said peace to you. And by that, they didn't mean just that you might have a nice untroubled day, but that you might be right with God in such a way that everything else is coming right in your life. So Paul's greeting to them is a really powerful thing. He, he wants them to have grace and peace. Peace with God such that everything goes right. Grace that is God making things that might go wrong go right in your life. So... The address, the greeting, and then it was traditional to give a thanksgiving. Um, so let's look into Paul's uh, thanksgiving. It's already clear, isn't it, that he's not um, thanking some God. So you would get in a Greek letter, you know, um, thank you, uh, Aphrodite, that I managed to um, sell all my fish uh, this week, or whatever it might be. And, and Paul's is, is, is much bigger and broader than that, isn't it? He says, uh, we always thank God. This is the God who is the God of Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God who is Lord of the Old Testament. We thank God for all of you. We continually mention you um, in, in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So interestingly, Paul gives thanks that this little church is showing the characteristic Christian virtues, and not just in a Sunday, day of the week, Sunday best kind of way, but in a practical, life-changing, everyday, behavior-changing way. And in fact, the NIV, I guess most translations have added in some words, it just says, we remember before our God and Father your work from faith, your labor from love, and your endurance from hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the three 
characteristic virtues, not sure that's the right word, things that Christians exhibit. They exhibit faith, love, and hope. Faith is a response of trust to a message that one has heard. Faith in the Bible is not believing, uh, as a schoolboy once said, believing things that you know aren't true. Faith is believing things that you cannot see. You cannot see God. And for these people, they, cannot, uh, they will not have seen the cross. And, and they cannot see the future. But is having faith because of the message that they heard of, of all these truths. So primarily they have faith in the message that Paul has brought them. And, and Paul brought them this message in, in Acts 17. Jesus is the Christ who had to suffer and rise from the dead. So this is the message they've heard in human history. God himself, God the Son, became a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, this Jesus, is the Christ. It's God's anointed one. He is God in person. And this Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived the only perfect life ever lived. And he died a sacrificial death. That's why he had to suffer. He had to suffer so that sin could be paid for. And he had to rise from the dead. He had to rise <clears throat> so that we would, we would be convinced that he was who he said he was. And that his death had done what he said he would do. We all stand as moral debtors before God. We all stand as moral debtors before God. Our behavioral bank account is and always has been in the red. We have nothing to offer to put it right. The only way to put it right is, to, is by completely pure behavior. Completely pure behavior. And none of us can achieve any of that for any moment in time. We have no way of paying back our moral debt before the Lord. I've been hearing adverts on the radio. Um, for an organisation, I didn't take note of who it was, and they'll help you get an IVA. Um, that's an individual voluntary arrangement, which sounds like nice and polite. It sounds like buying insurance or something, but it's, it's one step away from bankruptcy. Do you know this? An IVA is an arrangement you can make with your creditors, and they promise you on the radio that they will write off up to 81% of your debt. Um, and creditors will sometimes enter into this kind of arrangement um, because they feel like it's better to get something back of you rather than nothing. By the way, if you are in financial trouble, um, come and say. Um, there are some leaflets from CAP, Christians Against Poverty, here this morning. If you are struggling, um, we're in this together. Um, don't struggle alone with your finances. The things can be done, and the sooner it can be done, um, the better. Um, and we can either help you or we can point you um, in the direction of cap. Leaflets with a balloon on there um, and there. But even under an IVA, this debt, if you've accrued thousands of pounds worth of, uh, of debt on your, on your credit card, um, it can't simply be made to vanish. It can't be made to vanish. Either you pay it or, or your creditors pay it. It's the same in the moral realm. 
You've built up a moral debt. You don't have the capacity to pay it back. It's somebody has to take the hit. And the person who takes the hit is the Lord. <coughs> takes the hit by putting his own son on the cross. Taking the punishment. You know this. Your moral debt has been paid two ways. Death penalty for the default. Because we're not talking about a few pounds. We're talking about failing before a holy and almighty God. The death penalty for the default has been paid. It's been paid by Christ. The credit you lack has been credited to you from Jesus' perfect life. He was the only person in credit when he died. And being, tra- being treated like that changes a person. Just want to assure you that we'll look, we will look at um, hope and love, but not in quite so much detail. Being treated like that changes a person. This next slide, I think. When you've been treated by grace, you want to do good to other people. Not in repayment to God as if he says, I've forgiven you, um, but actually now you can repay, but actually out of thanks. If you know that you've been helped by God, it, it changes a person. And so Paul is confident that the Thessalonians have faith. They've trusted the gospel message because they're being good to one another and the city around them in, in new ways. They've been set free from trying to be good to save their skin, which is a kind of grudging goodness. They want to be good now to bring... Glory to God. Do you feel you don't have much faith? Sometimes I feel like you don't have much faith. Well, I want to suggest this morning that um, you, you might all like to give it a go. Uh, when you meet a person over coffee this morning, um, ask them how they became a Christian. Ask them how they became a Christian. It's a good way to get to know people. Um, but it's a good way to be encouraged. And actually, it's a good way for them, as they tell you how they became a Christian, for them to, re- to renew and to uh, reactivate um, some faith. But especially if you're a person who feels like you don't have much faith this morning, go to somebody and ask them, how did you become a Christian? How did faith start in your life? And I think you'll typically get two kinds of answers. Albeit it grew gradually... I was in church or I was a child in Sunday school and it grew gradually from the information I was given or it comes out of a moment of conviction. Suddenly maybe you heard this message that you were a sinner and you were wrong with the Lord and a moment of conviction came and you knew you needed to get right with God but then you heard the good news uh, that Jesus has done it for you. But the point is this, faith needs information. Faith needs information. Read about Jesus. Read one of the Gospels. Read 1 Thessalonians. Do it with somebody else. I'm not sure the books are out there this morning, the, uh, um, but there are little Gospels. Uh, you can sit down and read, and read it with somebody else. Behind the scenes, faith is ultimately a gift. It is ultimately something God gives you. Paul says this, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. Uh, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. 
We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see that? By grace, being saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. Ultimately, everybody who's become a Christian I think would look back and say, God spoke to me, and God gave me the faith to respond. If you don't have faith, or you feel you don't have faith, ask for it. Ask for the Lord, give me, give me more faith, or simply try it out. Go to the Lord and say, I hear that you forgive people. I hear that Jesus is prepared to, to pay for my sin. And I hear that you're prepared to credit his righteousness as mine so I can be right with God. I, I, hear, I hear that you'll give me your Holy Spirit to make me connected with you and make me stronger in my determination, my ability to be more like you. I, I hear that. And I want to try it. I want it now. Please, please can I have that? I'm ready to make you Lord. Faith isn't faith until it's tried something out. And faith needs, faith grows. Faith needs experience. Faith needs that moment by moment, day by day risk. Where you risk something on that faith. You say, well, I am going to talk to this person about what I did on Sunday. And faith needs action. If your faith doesn't do anything, that's what the Thessalonians, faith, out of that faith, they just feel free and motivated to do good things for other people. If you keep the faith to yourself, it kind of goes off. We took a naan bread back to Tesco's yesterday. Okay, it was kind of, it was still in its kind of shrink wrap, the two naan breads actually. Um, it wasn't due to expire until the 10th of September but it had some really pretty colours on it. Um, some green bits on one end and some, and some orange bits uh, up the other. You can't shrink wrapped faith and hope it is going to stay good uh, and whole and solid. It has to do something. It has to turn to God in worship. It has to, um, turn, to the, turn outwards and look to other people. So Paul says that this is basic. That's what it means to be a Christian. You have faith, and out of that faith, you do good stuff. They have love. We've kind of touched on it already. And the love of God has changed them. When you become a Christian, you like other people more. Okay? When you become a Christian, you like other people more. Um, some of us extroverts, some of us introverts... Um, Mostly we're either extroverts or introverts for selfish reasons. Quite a lot of the time, we, don't, we, we like ourselves a lot more than we like other people when you become a Christian. You like other people more. Please, that's got to be true. It's impossible to know that God really loves you and for it not to make a difference in your day-by-day -day relationships. And briefly, this word labor... The labor uh, means toil, means something wearisome. Paul can see these Thessalonian Christians. They're wearying themselves on behalf of other people. What do you put your best efforts into? What takes up your time and your money and your imagination? Do you, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you weary them? To the local poor or the homeless, do they get a sliver somewhere of you? Time, your money, and your imagination. What about those less well off around the world? Do they get a little bit of your 
time, your money, and imagination. Knowing the love of God through the indwelling spirit should slowly but inexorably turn you inside out. And thirdly, they have endurance. Endurance is, is the ability to hold on, hold out to the end. It's stickability. And, and Paul is so grateful. He, he's so acutely aware that he's left this church only a matter of, of, of weeks old, um, trusting Christ in a place where, where the, the Jews are out, to, are out to disadvantage them and make life hard for some in whatever ways they can. And there's nothing gluing them together. They have no building. They have no programs. Apart from probably meeting on the Lord's Day, they have no common assets. Nothing is gluing them together or keeping them going other than their faith and their love and their hope. What is this Christian hope? Well, Paul will tell us more later in the letter. But it's this confidence that Jesus will return and when he does, he will judge and that he will create heaven on earth. And the Christian hope is in that judgment that God will say, yes, he, she, you are one of mine and you're welcome. As I go on in the Christian life, we should be motivated by this thought that there's a great new world coming. But actually, as I go on in the Christian life, I don't know whether it's true for you, the negative part of that equation comes more into the foreground. I'm motivated to press on because at this point in time, I don't want to risk what I've gained and throw it away and risk spending eternity under punishment in fire and in pain. The negative part of that equation is, is, is quite potent. The pressures against being a Christian are, are greater now than at any point in my lifetime, and I suspect yours as well. <clears throat> to be a, a Christian and to believe what Christians have always believed is about as popular as being a racist. If you're a Christian today, you, 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 you see that's about the level on, on which people see you. So what is this hope? What is the benefit? What is the thing we're looking forward to that, that keeps you going when, when people are just going to look down on you and they're going to hate you? And for me, it goes like this. <clears throat> is there a God? And I think uh, looking scientifically... You have to, if you want to know more about that, you have to come and talk to me. Scientifically, logically, historically, yes. Logically, because of, of the and scientifically, because of the nature of creation. Um, historically, because I believe Jesus wrote from the dead. Is there a God? Yes. Who is he? Well, only one person has actually come to earth and made a credible claim to be God, and that was Jesus Christ. Other people have come and claimed to have revelations from God. Buddha, uh, Joseph Smith, Muhammad. Only Jesus made the claim that he is God. Is it a credible claim? Looking historically, did Jesus rise from the dead? 
It's a question you need to answer. The answer to that question, I believe, is yes. In other words, I think as a Christian, you have to build a foundation as well as a superstructure. If the superstructure is good works and is love, you have to have a foundation, which is an apologetic, a reason for why you believe, why you believe that, that stands, that holds the weight. If there is a God, it is Jesus, and it is credible, then we have to take, um, we have to take note of what he says. And he says this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. Jesus comes in the saviour. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So what is key? So there is a God, it is Christ. It is credible. What is going to happen? Everybody is going to be judged. Those who fail the test will be condemned by God. They'll go to everlasting punishment. Those who let Jesus take their test for them will go to a whole new world. Be right with God will not be condemned uh, when Jesus returns. I guess that's, you may think that's a very negative answer to the hope, but it is part. It is a key part of our Christian hope that God saves us, rescues us. At the end of the chapter, uh, it talks about Jesus who set, rescues us from the coming wrath. Rescues us from the coming wrath. That is the Christian hope. So just to try and sum up. We've just made a start. We've, we've scratched into the, uh, into the beginning of the letter. How do you realize this letter, 1 Thessalonians, next slide? Um, in fact, all of the Bible is addressed to you. All of the Bible is addressed to you, and it is all a love letter, um, and it is personal. It's written by a God who is, uh, who is personal and has made himself a person in Jesus Christ. It is a love letter. It is a love letter that will blow your mind and bring about if you are, uh, make a genuine Christian response to it, faith, love, and hope, and it will change your life. It will get you involved in good works, hard labor, um, and future confidence. If you don't have those things, you haven't understood. And I would say, read it again. And I would say, hurry up. I'd say, do it quickly. Don't know the day when Jesus will return. Jesus is the only way to escape from the coming wrath and make a response. Make a response of faith. Primarily a faith that shows itself in works, that works out in love and in response to the love of God and gives you hope, hope for the future. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father God, thank you that you've been here, you still are here by your Holy Spirit making this letter clear uh, as a love letter to us, a, a picture uh, of what a church is like. It's a gathering of people of faith, uh, faith, love and hope. We want to be like that. And where we're not like that, Lord, usually it's because not read the love letter, not gone back to it up to a while. 
We ask you, bring us back to your word. Renew our faith. Empower our love. Strengthen our hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.